0: Welcome to Not In A Huff with Jackson Huff, where we interview newsmakers, storytellers, and all-around interesting people. Sit back, relax, uh, unless you're driving, and enjoy the show. Here's Jackson. Hello, hello, hello. I am Jackson Huff. This is Not In A Huff. Thanks for being here. Amazing guest for you this week. I am interviewing Gina L. Osborne. Now, Gina, she started her career in the army in counterintelligence, um, literally espionage and and things like that. I'm not sure if espionage is the right term. You know, spy, spy things, cybersecurity, surveillance, all that. The the literally, um, you know, the the movie stakeouts and and you know during during the Cold War and and. Learning about you know Russian intelligence and and a lot of other areas, just a a fascinating person. After she left the military, not to be outdone, she joined the FBI, became uh, the assistant special agent in charge in the L.A. area, um, working in Little Saigon on an organized crime area. It, it, it was just a, a fascinating conversation. I don't know how often. Um, you're going to be able to to speak to to someone who is literally a counterintelligence agent formerly, um, you know somebody who has kind of had their hand on the pulse of you know America's intelligence, America's information and and the things that we are wanting to make sure that don't, uh, I guess, don't get uh, sent out to to other countries. And then also, Maybe a little bit of uh, trying to, to gather intelligence from other countries they don't want us to know too. Just a fascinating conversation. We're going to talk a lot about what it was like being in that world, being you know working with the FBI, working with the Army in in intelligence. We're going to talk about you know the the role she played joining that that world as a a female uh, in an, in a time that only about ten percent. Uh, of the people in the army or in the FBI um, were female. So, just a, an amazing person. Obviously, a, a glass ceiling shattering um, role. So, just a, a really cool person. Uh, it, we also talked about her um, her business now, coaching you know women in uh, you know in industry, on how to to conquer these male-dominated fields. So just, uh, it it was a cool conversation. Not much more I can say about it other than that. Other than, please do listen. I think you're really going to enjoy this. Here's my interview with Gina L. Osborne. I am here today with Gina L. Osborne. Gina, how are you? I'm doing great, Jackson. Good. Well, thanks so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Absolutely. Well, let's just kind of get into it. I always like to kind of start... Um, you know, we, we know some of the, the accomplishments that, that you that you have, and we're going to talk a lot about that. Um, but tell, tell us a little bit about growing up and, and you know, how, how that was. And then I guess, namely, was your passion always to, to get into the military and, and law enforcement or, or, or not at all?
1: Well, I would say I grew up in Orange County, California, and I had my dad was a Marine, and so he wanted boys. And when he got my sister and me, he sort of raised us like boys. (laughs) So uh, I had a great uh, upbringing um, until my parents wound up uh, breaking up. And then I had alcohol in the family. So it was kind of a struggle through my teenage years, but I always had a passion for writing. When I was in junior high school, I used to write. Laverne and Shirley and Happy Days episodes. And I, I wrote a full feature film when I was in high school. Um, so, really, what I wanted to do was go out and uh, kind of be an international woman of intrigue where I can collect experiences and write about them. And so, at the time, it was in the 80s, it was during the end of the Cold War, and I wanted to work for the CIA. So in my second year of college, a young man sat down next to me and started telling me about the army's counterintelligence program. And the next day, I went down and I enlisted.
0: So you know, you're, you're talking about Laverne and Shirley and, and happy days. I don't I don't see it on your credits that you made a career out of that, but you did do a lot of other really cool things. And I just wonder because you do talk a lot about it, um, you know, with with your podcast that I want to talk about later. But at that time, you know, in the in the early eighties, was it was there very many, I guess, women that you could look up to in these in these areas in, in intelligence and in uh, the military? Or was that not something that was really on your radar? You just knew that that's what you wanted to do and you didn't really care um, whether there was, I guess, a standard bearer already.
1: Right. No, I didn't really have anybody who who was a role model for me until actually I got into the Army and I met some amazing women who were were amazing role models for me. But um, but yeah, when I first got into the Army, I think fewer than 10% of the soldiers were women. So there weren't a lot of us uh, there. And then going into counterintelligence, there weren't a lot of us there either. So uh, it wasn't until um, I really worked this major espionage case where it was during Desert Shield, Desert Storm. And I met a woman by the name of Connie Huff, who was the case agent on this major espionage case. And so she really uh, has been my role model ever since. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, so, I mean, you, you've mentioned, but when you when you did get into the military, did you say it was the army? It was, uh-huh. Yeah, so when you did get into the army, you you kind of shifted towards that that intelligence area. Uh, I mean, you, you mentioned when you were growing up, that was something you're interested in. But why do you think you had that interest in, um, you know, the intelligence field?
1: You know, I just wanted to live in Europe and I was fascinated with the Cold War, anything with the CIA or the KGB. I would read about it when I was in high school. Um, and I just wanted the experience of of living the life of a spy catcher, and so that was just something that I wanted, and uh, I, I followed through. When the uh, guy started telling me about how I could get that experience as an Army counterintelligence agent, I I went down the next day and uh, and applied.
0: So is that a is that a hard, I, I guess, area to get into? Because I know, like I I work at, in recruiting for a college, so a lot of times we go to some of the same events that the army and things go to. So all these recruiters are saying, yeah, you can do this in the army. You can do that in the army. Is that an easy field to get into? Or did that take, I guess, a lot to, to actually accomplish?
1: Yeah. You had to score really, really high on the uh, army's as, I think it's called the ASFAB test, whatever the test is to get into the army, they score you on various things. And so you had to have a really high score in order to, to get into that. So, yeah, um, I guess it was hard. It was harder to get into the FBI, (laughs) but Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, had uh, definite qualifications for people trying to get into the intelligence program.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense. So you kind of, you, you touched on just a second ago, but that was something that intrigued me when I was reading, I guess your bio on your, your website. Um, You talk about a high profile espionage case during the cold war that you worked on. Sounds really intense. I mean what what was what's that all about? What can you what can you tell us about that?
1: Sure. So there was a specialist in Baumholder, Germany, and he his name is Albert Sambalay, and he was taking information from his Unit And all of his unit was pretty much over in Kuwait, and they were busting the scuds out of the sky. And while they were doing that, he was in uh, bombholder Germany, trying to sell their troop deployment information to a Middle Eastern entity. So we investigated him for several months, followed him around, uh, had quite an experience on, on that case and I was very fortunate. Uh, We did a sting operation on him where he met a uh, counterintelligence agent who was acting as a Middle Eastern um, intelligence officer, and uh, he wound up paying him $3,000, and Albert accepted the money. He signed a a receipt for the money and uh, said that he was uh, on their side now, so that was it. So They paid him the money, and he wound up coming home to his house. I had been in a look out across the street from his house for about a week, watching his comings and goings. And I was very fortunate to watch him get arrested. And And there's something about watching somebody who is losing their freedom for trying to sell out your country. And it mm. was the most exciting times of uh, of my law enforcement career.
0: Yeah, no, I, I can imagine. So I, I feel like in that area, obviously, in, in movies, we see all the the, you know, the I guess the intense moments and things like that, but I would assume you know you said you were in a, a hideout across the street for a week. There's probably a lot of just downtime that you're you're not necessarily doing that that movie scene thing.
1: Yeah, we had a couple of those movie scenes. We were doing a car chase and uh, wound up in a major accident on top of a bridge <laughs> going. Really, really fast. So I wound up in the hospital overnight for that one. And one of, uh, so Albert, he would go into Belgium uh, a few times and we didn't have the team that I was on. We didn't have the clearance to follow him into Belgium. So we had to wait at the German Belgian border for him to come back into Germany. So one of our surveillance operators, uh, he decided to get out of his car and go into the forest and sort of, you know, take his binoculars and his radio. And he would call the team, tell the team when Albert came back in, well, the eye saw him getting out of the car. And so they unleashed their dogs on him. So that was quite a, uh, a movie type experience, especially because it was my husband. And so mm. I was a little worried for and for about three hours, we were looking for him, wondering if he was dead or alive. Because his radio, he had tripped uh, just like in the movies and broke his radio, mm. and uh, so that was one of those moments that I'll never forget.
0: <laughs> yeah, I would assume so. Yeah, that's 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 something for sure. So you you did that for a good little while. I don't really have years. How long were you in the army and, and working for uh, intelligence?
1: For just under six years.
0: Okay, and then you. So after that, you you left the the army i know that you joined the fbi was that something that happened relatively quickly after you 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 left the army or or not
1: it didn't actually it took about um 18 months to go through the application process to get into the fbi a mm-hmm. uh, very competitive process the average age going through the academy is 31 years old so, mm-hmm. uh, so you're competing with people who are on their second careers and uh mm-hmm pretty established. So yeah, so it took me about 18 months to get through that process. Plus, I sat through a a couple of year hiring freeze as well. So I wound up going into the FBI in 1996.
0: Gotcha. Yeah. So you mentioned earlier about like the CIA, What, what made you go the FBI route?
1: You know, it just didn't work out with the CIA for whatever reason. And I was absolutely devastated because that was my goal from the beginning. You know, I went out, I, I knew I needed a four-year degree. I wound up getting my degree while I was in the military.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And it just, for whatever reason, didn't happen. And so the FBI, they opened up after their four-year hiring freeze. And uh, so I was very fortunate to get through their process, and, and which is a very hard process because it's about you know, testing and then interviewing and uh, polygraph and background investigation and physical fitness and all of that. So uh, yeah, it was really challenging to get in, but uh, I finally made it through.
0: So when you, when you started with the FBI, I know, you know, one thing that you talk about is, I, I guess, again, kind of working in, in the intelligence area, but tell us just a little bit about your your career with the FBI.
1: When I received my assignment, uh, I was very, very fortunate. You don't know where you're going to be stationed when you enter the FBI Academy, you find out five weeks later into the Academy. So I wound up going back to Los Angeles and I was very fortunate to be assigned to a resident agency that was in my hometown. So I was very fortunate for that. And I was assigned to a counterintelligence squad because I had all this great army counterintelligence experience. And they gave me a civil rights case where Thai girls were being brought into the United States and forced into prostitution. Mm. So my first case was sort of an Asian organized crime case. And as a result of my investigation, I wound up on a task force in the city of Westminster with three detectives and a DA investigator. And I was on that task force for about five years. And we worked everything from extortions to loan sharking, uh, drive-by shootings, murder for hire, uh, all sorts of different counterfeiting. And uh, yeah, that was really an exciting time as well.
0: Yeah. And I, that's, that's something I'd written down. So that was in, was that the organized crime task force when you, I guess we're working in little Saigon. Is that right? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So, little Saigon. Uh-huh.
0: So was, was everything that you're doing, was it related to, to organized crime within the Asian community there or was, did it, did it branch out into a lot of other things too?
1: Well, Little Saigon in Orange County is the largest population of Vietnamese people outside of Vietnam. And this was the 90s. So the people who came over from Vietnam into America, you know, this was pretty much the first generation of those folks. So the gangsters that we were going after were gangsters in Vietnam. So they were super ruthless. And they targeted their own community because they knew that the Vietnamese community would not reach out to the police because in their country, the police was corrupt. So that was an issue in trying to get people to cooperate and become witnesses and things like that for us. So, yeah, the entire time. But we since the FBI is international, I mean, I would work with agents in San Jose and Seattle and Miami and um, and uh, where else in New Orleans. So uh, this prostitution ring that I was going after, where the girls were held against their will, they were on a circuit, and so uh, I created a case, developed a case with other field offices around the country, and we were able to um, take that one down.
0: So, so from from reading, I think where you, I guess, advanced to was assistant special agent in charge, uh, where you worked on the cyber and, and computer forensics um, area. So for the common person that doesn't know much about the FBI, what does exactly that mean? Assistant, special agent in charge, and then also the, the, the team that you were on.
1: Right. So the assistant special agent in charge in any given field office, that's the number two position. So the special agent in charge is in in charge of the entire office. And the assistant special agent in charge is the number two person. So in Los Angeles, we had several special agents in charge and we had several assistant special agents in charge, but each of us had our own program. And so I was in charge of cyber and computer forensics. And so what we did was, so all of the major hacks, whether on the national security side or on the criminal side, Uh, we would investigate those. Uh, And more often than not, they were international cases that we worked. We worked the first computer intrusion joint uh, cyber case with the Egyptian National Police. Uh, We worked uh, the North Korea attack against Sony Pictures Entertainment in 2014. So we worked some really major cases. And uh, we also had computer forensics program, and uh, we built a $7 million state-of-the-art forensics uh, lab in Orange County uh, as part of that program.
0: So tell us just again for, for people that don't know a lot about uh, the FBI, just maybe some things that would would surprise us about. I don't know whether it's the FBI's capabilities or just things about being an agent that would surprise us or, or something in that vein.
1: You know, I'll tell you when what, what I miss the most are the people. And when you're when this is a second career and you're it's so competitive, and the average age going to the academy is thirty one you're going to get some really, really quality people. And these are people who wanted to be FBI agents their entire lives. And really the FBI is, it's not a job and it's not a career. It's more of a calling. Um, You know, you can't go home and put your badge and gun on the shelf and say, okay, I'm I'm an FBI agent tomorrow morning starting at 7 a.m. But I'm not one now. When you're an FBI agent, you're an FBI agent all the time. And you're always representing the brand. So whenever you see anything on the news about an FBI agent doing something or another um, that is against the integrity, the the fidelity, bravery, any of the things that the FBI stands for, it hurts the entire brand and it hurts all of the people inside. Of the fbi so uh so yeah so we don't uh, we don't we don't care to see <laughs> any anything on uh, television but uh, that we've seen so much of over the last uh, few years of um, different decisions that were made uh, but anyway it's it's definitely a, a tight uh, family uh, that we have the fbi family and uh, it's just filled with amazing hardworking, patriotic people
0: yeah, yeah, and I think that you know, based on what you're you're saying there too, it's important to to point out that probably with the FBI even at the top levels, but but maybe not even there. You know, the the rank and file FBI agents and and those that work within it, I, it's it's not a partisan organization. It's 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 there for you know us as a as a country. Not uh, it, it it doesn't swing one way or the other, and that's something that I think that we have to. To realize,
1: right? No, absolutely. In fact, I had over a hundred people working with me when I was working in the cyber program, and I didn't know what their po- uh, political affiliations were. We just don't talk about it. So that's that's something that I think you know it came out in the news that I think people may think based on what they've seen in the news that that it's a very political organization when it's absolutely the opposite.
0: Yeah. Yeah. For sure. So, you know, you, you mentioned working in, I guess, a male-dominated area, and I'm, I'm sure the FBI is. Um, tell us just a little bit about that.
1: Sure. Yes. I In my coaching business, I work with uh, two sets of people. Um, one are women who are rising to the top, uh, on the way to the top in male-dominated fields, just because I did that for 28 years. And then I also uh, work with people to lead through chaos, crisis, and change. So more often than not, during my career, um, when I went into the Army, fewer than 10 percent of the soldiers were women. And when I got into the FBI in 1996, uh, 14 percent of the agents were women. So there weren't a whole lot of us. In fact, women weren't allowed to be FBI agents until I think 1972 or 73 uh, when J. J. Edgar Hoover died. So, uh, so yeah, so there's a a generation of women that came before me that I was very grateful because they paved the way for me and uh, I did the same for the women who came behind me. But yeah, it's definitely, you know, you go in and as a, as a leader, because we're all leaders. Uh, You know, we kind of take on the traits in the beginning of our male counterparts where we feel like we have to be rough and tumble and we have to do things a certain way. But the more I grew into my position in the FBI and into the executive position that I had, the more I really relied on my feminine skill set because I'm very good at solving problems and uh, building relationships and collaborating and communicating and so the more I really embraced my feminine skill set as a leader in a male dominated world, the more I shined and the, and the better I got as an authentic leader. So that's one of the things that I work on I, with the, my clients on is uh, getting to the point where they're leading authentically.
0: Yeah, no, that's, that's really awesome. And that's something I kind of wanted to ask about, but I wasn't exactly sure how to ask it. But since you, since you mentioned it, you know, obviously there there's reasons that males are, are good in a certain area like the FBI. And there's reasons that, you know, women and, and females are, are good in that area. What, why do you think some in some, I guess, roles within the FBI and things that, you know, the traits and the, the feminine side actually is extremely beneficial?
1: Gosh, uh, it it served me well my entire career. Uh, When I was in Germany and I was on surveillance, they could put me with any of my male counterparts and we looked like a couple so we wouldn't stand out when we were out on surveillance or when we were out doing an investigation. I remember one time I was working a loan sharking case. And uh, the guy that they called the executor, because he was the one who would uh, break people's legs if they didn't pay the loan shark. (laughs) I interviewed him. And for whatever reason, he told me everything. And uh, maybe he didn't think that there was anything wrong with charging 10% interest or breaking people's legs. But it was just funny. He just kind of Told me the entire story, and I wrote it all down. And then when we went to court uh, the following Monday, uh, he read the affidavit that I wrote and everything that he said. And I was walking him back to the marshals, and he was shaking his head. And he said, "I can't believe you told people this. What I told you." So he thought uh, he was just telling uh, telling a secret to a friend. I'm not sure what he was thinking, but you know, for as much as it helped, you know, there were other times where I was in environments where. Some of the men just didn't want to work with a woman. So, you know, I think they kind of balanced themselves out. And the reason why diversity is so important in law enforcement is we need to look like the communities that we serve. So it's so important for us to have women uh, have women of color, have men of color. It's very important for us to look like our communities otherwise we're not going to be able to do the work that we do and And I know what it's like to be a tall blonde woman working in little Saigon because, everybody, all the gangsters knew who I was. In fact, they would talk about me on wires whenever we burned. they burned our surveillance or something like that. So I know what it's like to go into a community where I didn't speak the language and I didn't look like everyone and I didn't fit in because you have to work that much harder in order to gain the trust of the community when you don't fit into that community.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So you did retire from, from the FBI and then you you've started this um, business and then also a podcast. Uh, you you kind of highlighted it um, a minute ago, but tell us just a little bit about that business.
1: I have an executive coaching business, and uh, I'm also writing. <laughs> I'm I'm taking my passion and I'm keeping my passion. I've written a couple of television pilots, and I'm pinching them around Holly, pitching them around Hollywood right now. And my podcast. I mean, I look at that as an opportunity to tell stories as well and lead like a lady. Is a podcast. And what I do is I speak with women who have risen to the top of male dominated fields and they talk about their stories. So I've got a woman who created a $200 million uh, petroleum company. Another lady, she did a $60 million construction company. Um, I interviewed the first African-American female Navy pilot in the history of our Navy. So I have all of these women coming on. And really, it's not just for women to listen to because they have such great advice in moving the ball down the field and combating fear and uh, delegating. So we talk about a variety of different business topics, um, but it's just really fun to hear the stories of these women who had similar background to my own about being in a male-dominated field and succeeding.
0: Yeah. No, I I checked out your podcast. Really cool podcast for sure. I I enjoyed, enjoyed listening.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much. It's fun. And I, and I loved it. And it's a storytelling thing. So I will uh, interview the guests and then I'll go back through editing and just kind of weave in this fabulous story. And, and I'd like for each of them to give me sort of three things that are unique to themselves that can be very helpful. And the the pilot that I was telling you about, uh, she, she talks about combating fear because she would go out and she would land on uh, on aircraft carriers. And so I asked her the question, you know, wasn't it scary? And she goes, I didn't have time to be scared when you're paired, when you're trained, when you know what you're doing, that's when you aren't afraid anymore. So I thought that was a really good lesson for everything that we do.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. For sure. Yeah. Let's steal your question. What's three, what's three things that are unique about you?
1: Gosh, uh, you know, I am, I am very much a dreamer. And that's where the whole writing thing comes in. And I'm very determined <laughs> and I like to build empires for yeah. the people. So that's one thing uh, that I really enjoy doing is coming up with ideas and having a vision and sharing that with all of the people that I work with so that we can all build something that's greater than ourselves, that serves our community. So I enjoy doing that as well.
0: No, that's that's awesome. So you know, in, in your business, you... the the word that I guess comes up a lot. And I I don't know, it's not necessarily a common word in the, in the business world. Um, So tell us a little bit about chaos and managing chaos. So,
1: and so I have responded to major terrorist attacks and catastrophic cyber hacks. Uh, I was in charge of a squad uh, in South this, my squad responded to terrorist attacks in Southeast Asia. So anytime a business, an American business or an American was involved or heard in any sort of terrorist attack overseas, uh, we would go out and we would investigate that. So I sort of know how to uh, manage a crisis. I know that chaos can be eliminated if we do a certain amount of things and uh, change is inevitable. So we need to look at that as an opportunity. So uh, for your guests, Jackson, if they go to my website, ginaelosborne.com, I've got two free eBooks that they can have. One is eliminating chaos from your business and your life. And the other one is for women who, are, uh, who want to make it to the top in male dominated fields. So I've got some really Good advice for them in that, but uh, but yeah, but I definitely it's so important because right now, with everything that's gone on in the last year with COVID and and you know, businesses shutting down and all of that, um, it's important for us to really concentrate on eliminating the chaos in our lives so that we can uh, kind of see ahead and prevent things the crisis from coming in,
0: yeah. So, you always like to ask guests that's that's well accomplished and have done a lot of really cool stuff. What is what is the one thing in, in your whole career, or even this this I guess post uh, intelligence career that you're you're most proud of that you've done?
1: Gosh, you know I think what am I most proud of? What I'm most proud of, and when I look back on my FBI career, is taking the time to develop the leaders that were coming up behind me, and I think that's what kind of got me into the executive coaching is because there's nothing better than watching people grow and, and giving them advice but not I, I, I was in the army i was a lead from the front person but in the cyber world you can't really be that unless you have this great technical prowess so um, i was a servant leader and i got my folks everything they needed to do their job and i had high expectations for my young leaders my squad supervisors And so I would often give them projects uh, that they may or may not have been ready for uh, so that they had to grow. (laughs) So I definitely had a program for all my young leaders to, to get out there and try things that they've never done before so they can expand into better leaders. So when I look back, what is my legacy? I would say that those folks are my legacy and I'm very proud of all of them.
0: No, that's, that's really cool for sure. Yeah. In, in my classes, you know, the the business classes that I teach, the big thing that we talk about is there's a huge difference between being a leader and being a manager. And you've got to decide what, what you want to be. You know, do you want to be respected and do you want to be a leader? And do you want people to do things for you that maybe they don't necessarily want to do? Or do you want to be a manager where you're you're poking and prodding and and having to fight every day? So I I like that a lot. And that just that's a really cool, cool thing. I I like uh, I like your answer.
1: Yeah, well, I found that being a micromanager just kills creativity. Mm. And when you're and I was working with these amazingly creative cyber people and I learned that by giving them ownership in everything that we're doing, our program that we called it, and giving them the opportunity to have a voice and give their opinions and create programs and projects and do all of those things, I mean, it made them not only feel recognized for me listening to them and, and accepting what they are doing. Um, but it really just made them grow and, and it made the program grow. So I, that's what I've, I've learned is if you micromanage, all you're doing is killing pr- productivity and by or killing creativity. And when you kill somebody's creativity, their morale goes down as well. So if you want high morale, high productivity, open it up and allow people to think their own way and don't tell them how to do things, let them come up with their own ways of doing things. And that really makes people feel accepted and recognized and it makes them want to work harder with you.
0: So you know, let's, I mean, pivot to something else just very quickly. When I was researching you, um, you know, I, I found that you, you spoke on Access Hollywood on cybercrime. I just wonder, how did you, how did you develop the, the subject matter expert, uh, you know, to, to go on and and do those things too.
1: Gosh, well, I worked cyber for 11 years and Mm. during that time, I, I, painfully got cyber certifications, even though that I really don't believe I have the aptitude for it. Um, But when I went on Access Hollywood, I talked about romance scams. So I completely understand that. If uh, you want me to talk about computer intrusions and ones and zeros and all those other things, that's not uh, for me. But romance scams is kind of near and dear to my heart, because I helped create a squad with one of my squad supervisors that uh, addressed people who were scammed by uh, these organizations. Um, And and a lot of people think when it comes to romance scam, it's just some guy sitting in the basement of his parents' house scamming one person. But really, it's an organization of people who are um, getting these these victims to do illegal things as a result of the love that they have for them. So, uh, so yeah, that's kind of near and dear. I I hate to see people to get taken advantage of. So that's one of my, my pet projects.
0: Yeah. I feel like, you know, the, the easiest way to get people to do things is either something about money or something about emotions. And if you can play on one of those, that's, that's, uh, that's your golden ticket.
1: Oh, yeah. And so many people think, oh, it would never happen to me. I would never let something like that happen to me. But these scammers are really good at what they do. And when you find a person and you meet their needs and you get their heart involved in it, um, we don't think with our heads anymore. We're thinking with our hearts and we're hoping that even though it seems too good to be true, we really, really want it to be true. So we're willing to be kind of taken down that road. Um, but yeah, if you, if you look, I mean, it's happening every day. So you really have to be careful and they're not just finding you, they're not just finding victims on dating websites. They're also going on Facebook. They're going on, um, gaming sites. They're going on LinkedIn. I mean, I've had a few times over the last year where people have reached out to me on LinkedIn, uh, trying to develop a relationship, which you never would see, uh, you know, prior to COVID.
0: I'll tell you, you're you're doing a lot of really cool things. Um, hopefully, people will check out that podcast because it's a it's a really cool one. But how can how can people connect with you and hear more?
1: Uh, sure. So I do public speaking as well, and I talk about uh, I speak to women's groups, and I also speak about leadership and leading through chaos, crisis, and change. So you can go to my website, GinaLOsborne.com. And then the podcast uh, is there as well. You can learn more about that, and uh, please subscribe. Uh, I'm looking if you. I would love for you to come and visit and subscribe.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I've appreciated. Like a lady. With, yeah,
1: like I'm sorry. It. It's called lead like a lady.
0: <laughs> lead like a lady. Yeah, very, very good. Well, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. I really appreciate your time.
1: Well, thank you, Jackson. This was fun.
0: And that was my interview with Gina L. Osborne. What a cool person! What an amazing life she's lived and just continuing to do such amazing things. I learned so much just hearing about, you know, the world of counterintelligence, the world of like like we kind of talked about, just breaking that that glass ceiling. I don't really love that term, but breaking that glass ceiling, joining a a world that was once dominated by males and just rocking it out. There's so many so many w- reasons that you know, this is a, an amazing area for anyone to join. She talked a lot about you know diversity in law enforcement and diversity in, in all jobs. It's important for the workforce to look exactly like the people that they serve. So I just I enjoyed speaking to her. I learned a lot. I was just—I was entertained. I was—I was intrigued. It was just a cool conversation. Do check out her podcast. Do check out her website that she mentioned. Just—just—it was a—it was a cool conversation, and I—I—I I, I think that if it's something that you enjoyed hearing about, listening to that podcast is going to just be a, a continuation hearing more of her story but also hearing about some uh, other amazing amazing women doing some some rocking things so i will put all that information down in the description just like i do with every episode all of her contact information check her out continue checking us out always appreciate you listening check us out on instagram not enough podcast facebook not enough with jackson huff like that page You can check us out on jacksonhuff.com. We're everywhere. Appreciate you being here. Appreciate Gina being here. Take it away, Chris. This has been Not in a Huff with Jackson Huff. Thank you for listening. Be sure to join us next time where we will interview another amazing guest who is sure to make you laugh or make you think, or hey, maybe even both. But until then, keep being awesome.